This holiday season, please consider supporting the Cato Institute and specifically the Cato Daily Podcast. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. If you support Cato with a donation of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast, or you can designate another individual to receive that benefit and all the other benefits of being a Cato sponsor. That website again is cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you for your generosity. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 21st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. When the Federal Reserve has no levers left to pull, then what? Eric Sims chairs the Department of Economics at Notre Dame at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. We discuss the economic outlook and the price of complacency in relatively good economic times. There is a great concern right now uh, that in a world with very low unemployment, and no obvious uh, indication of inflation or uh, rising inflation uh, and very low interest rates that the Federal Reserve, if and when it needs to act, will be unable to do so. Correct. So explain what that actually means for our audience. So, you know, sort of in the the historical conventional playbook that the Fed takes to try to engage in stabilization policy is when things get bad, they cut interest rates. And when the concern is that things are getting better and might be too better and putting upward pressure on prices and wages, uh, they would raise interest rates. We live in a world where at present, the target range for the federal funds rates one and a half to one and three quarters percent. In your typical recession in the last 60 years, the Fed has cut interest rates by about five percentage points. And so going down five percentage points from a baseline of 1.5 would involve moving rates down to three and a half percent below zero, which is, I would argue, not feasible. Uh, We've seen negative interest rates implemented in different parts of the world, but not to that level. And I think that uh, there are a number of problems associated with negative interest rates. And so I think this puts the Fed in a bit of a bind. And that's precisely why they're engaging in this review, if you will, of the monetary framework this year, I think folks have criticized and in some respects rightfully sort of the nature and scope of the review that it's been rather narrow. Um, But that's one of the reasons that they're conducting this review. And it's one of the reasons that the conference today here at the Cato Institute is so timely to think about what it is we're going to do when we need to provide stimulus to the economy and we can't do it through the means through which we've done so in the past. How unique is this moment? Very low interest rates, very low unemployment, and very low inflation. It's very unique. And I think if you had asked economists back in the 1970s, if you could give me inflation under 2% and unemployment below 4%, would you be happy with that? And we would say yes. But unfortunately, a lot of folks are, are, are concerned about this, concerned for a couple of reasons. As I mentioned just a second ago, there's the concern about what we do if things start deteriorating. We don't have much ammunition on the downside to cut interest rates. I think a broader concern is what does this coexistence of low inflation and low unemployment mean? And are we thinking about the economy in sort of the wrong way? And so this has come under the guise of the breakdown of the so-called Phillips curve, uh, which has picked up a lot of attention in the media and so forth recently. And has monetary policy just become divorced from what's happening in the real world? I think that's another concern, that the transmission from interest rates to what's happening in the real world, the Fed seems to have lost some ability to connect with. Uh, its targets of inflation and unemployment. So um, in this environment of low inflation and uh, very low interest rates, uh, if the Fed is constrained, it would seem to make sense that the Congress, which is able to borrow at very low low rates these days, would want to get involved to 
use some sort of fiscal stimulus to try to fix whatever the problem is? I would be hesitant to take up that recommendation. Um, you know, so there's lots of legislative problems and political issues that get involved when you start talking about fiscal policy implementation lags. I think that the majority of economists would agree that the nice thing about monetary policy and in particular an independent monetary policy is that they can react quickly to changing conditions, whereas politicians for a variety of different reasons uh, don't have that ability to do so. Uh, there certainly is the inclination or the tendency for politicians and people on the legislative side of things to want to ignore the consequences of their actions and say, well, debts don't matter and deficits don't matter. And there's this modern monetary theory where, in essence, the size of the central bank balance sheet can be used to finance whatever we want. I think these are dangerous ideas. Um, and I would not be comfortable as a citizen uh, leaving stabilization policy when the next crisis hits up to the fiscal authority. So I think it's important for us to think about how monetary policy can do so. Okay. So uh, to what extent then are uh, central bankers and uh, lawmakers taking this precarious spot seriously? I think central bankers are taking it very seriously. Um you know, as I mentioned a second ago, I think there's some concern that the scope and nature of the review that they're undertaking has not been quite expansive enough. But I think if you ask central bankers and you go to central bank conferences and you interact with folks that within the Federal Reserve System, they're aware that there's a problem on the horizon and they're trying to think about ways to deal with that in advance of that happening. Um, I'm less confident on the fiscal side of things that that, that we can be confident that there is forward-looking and trying to think about how to deal with uh, situations as they might arise. What are the best steps forward here? And, and I should say, what are the more politically feasible steps forward? You know, it's a good question. So one of the things that I talked about in my presentation today at this Cato conference, um, it wasn't politically popular in all in all corners. I think that quantitative easing or large-scale asset purchases that the Fed conducted the last time we had to deal with the zero lower bound were a reasonably effective substitute for conventional rate cuts. Um, in a sense, it's open market operations focusing on different kinds of assets that had been done so previous to that. There's been a lot of folks that have called for things like higher inflation targets or changes in the financial system that would allow for the wider implementation of deep negative interest rates, such as the abolition or near abolition of cash. I think that there are problems with negative interest rate policy. I'm doubtful that it has been particularly successful where it's been deployed. In contrast, I think that in the United States, we were relatively successful in dealing with uh, the headwinds that, we're facing, that we were facing in the wake of the crisis and the inability to cut rates because of the zero lower bound. Um, I nevertheless do think that we need to think beyond the basic monetary playbook at some level and ask ourselves the question, why are rates low? Why have neutral rates fallen? And there's a whole host of non-monetary reasons that that has happened. And I think it would be useful if we could have some discussion on the fiscal side about structural reforms that would perhaps cause neutral rates to rise and give us more scope for rate cuts and future downturns. So uh, that seems not super politically palatable. It is not. Um, and for the same reason that I talked about countercyclical fiscal policy as a way to deal with crises, it's unclear that that's going to be the case. But, you know, we're facing demographic challenges. We have a uh, shortage of safe assets throughout the world. 
you know, we have questions about declining productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And these are the kind of issues that I think are important from a long run perspective uh, that we need to be thinking about and that are certainly relevant for monetary policymakers. It's not obvious that monetary policy itself can deal with these issues. But I think it's important to talk about them and to have a robust national discussion about how we might enact structural reforms that would potentially have the side effect of giving monetary policy more room. What are the risks of not doing anything here? Not uh, doing not, anything not in what dimension? Reforms. Um, either uh, the Fed uh, raising interest rates or raising its targets or the federal government not uh, providing a some sort of structural reform to uh, central banking. I think there's very serious risks on sort of the fiscal side and not some sort of structural form. I think we have looming unfunded obligations crises on the fiscal side. We have sort of a dysfunctional polity in our country right now. Uh, we're engaging in trade wars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not particularly optimistic about you know, our longer run future future growth. And I think that's being reflected in very low long-term interest rates, that degree of pessimism. And so I think that that poses challenges for monetary policy. And so I think we need to be discussing these issues. I think the consequences are dire. If we want to have the kind of growth where generations are better off than previous generations, it's critical that we have these. Eric Sims chairs the Department of Economics at Notre Dame. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. You can support the Cato Institute and this podcast with an end-of-the-year gift. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you. <laughs>